Welcome back, everybody, here on Post Wrestling. WrestleMania week continues, and our guest today is a reporter with Spectrum Sports 360 out of Central Florida and co-host of the Living the Gimmick podcast. A pleasure to welcome to Post Wrestling, a man who is on the ground down in Tampa, Florida. John Elba is with us. John, how are you doing today? I think on the ground is probably the best way to <laughs> describe how this last year has been, man, here in Florida with combat sports. It's It's been pretty insane, but we're, we're, we're getting through and gearing up for what should be a, a pretty fun weekend as long as everyone tries to do their best to stay safe and responsible. You found yourself in a really interesting position, pretty much being in the epicenter of where all of these companies that we follow pretty much had to congregate to in order to move these shows forward with WWE and AEW and the UFC. And I mean, you have been in the midst of this. Uh, your coverage has been uh, outstanding uh, when it really comes to the the COVID, pr th the protocols of how how companies can responsibly hold shows during a pandemic. And here we are. Was there a point last year where you did not envision being at a a WrestleMania week, such as we are in the midst of now. Yeah, well, first off, I really appreciate the kind words. It's it's um, it, it's definitely been a very very trying year, obviously for all of us, but especially you know I, I think what a lot of people don't realize is um, I'm a sports reporter. I cover a lot more than just pro wrestling, but it just so happened that pro wrestling and MMA, as you said, Florida kind of became the the epicenter of it, and um, it, it was really just insane when, when you start laying the ties together and, and I think we're approaching the one year anniversary tomorrow, uh, April 9th is the one year anniversary that Florida governor Ron DeSantis, um, put forth the executive order that allowed these companies to run in Florida. Um, so it's, it's pretty amazing to see how the state and these combat sports companies ingrained themselves with one another and allowed them to run because i mean quite frankly there were no other states that were going to allow for that and wwe AEW, ufc all these promotions would have had to have come to a stop at some point last year had the state of florida not come through for them so whether it's for better or for worse you know that's everyone's own discretion but Ultimately, it, it's pretty remarkable to look back and, and see how that all transpired. And also the circumstances that these companies found themselves in that all of them, I mean, extending with, with the UFC to the apex in Vegas, but having ownership of their own venues just to run in that interim period before WWE could get out to uh, start the, the Thunderdome era of pro wrestling shows. But that was... Another thing that just was, you know, sheer luck, the fact that here they are with their own buildings in the state that was going to largely give them the green light to go ahead with these shows. And what what could have been without the ability to to execute these television contracts. I mean, it's when you actually sit back and look, it's it's just a remarkable set of circumstances that they they could go through, especially that initial period if we're going back a year. Right. And what I think is actually most unique about the circumstances is that I had always kind of thought that eventually, especially talking about WWE here, that WWE would want to kind of reel back from running house shows on the road and instead 
tried to come up with not quite a studio taping setting, but an environment rather where they could centralize an audience and control an audience and, and basically become a glorified productions set and studio. And then, you know, still go on the road for pay-per-views and stuff like that and big shows, but where they could cut down those type of costs and still do their big over-the-top productions. And I think what we're seeing right now with the Thunderdome is kind of the beginning of that genesis. And I very much think that like while immediately in the, in the near future, we will return to touring. I very much think this is the way of the future and that the Thunderdome setup is most certainly the groundwork for what is to come. And and even from people I've had conversations with too, I think there's a sentiment that we're getting a peek into the future of pro wrestling when we see setups like this. And I think even further to that point is the idea of like what extent of touring is going to be part of the new WWE world. Like certainly there are always the, you know, the, the post Christmas house shows that are extremely lucrative for the company and big markets that maybe you choose certain times of the year to run. But the idea of four live events a week and these performers going from city to city to city, I, I don't know if we will ever see a full return to that, nor the the financial need to do so. Yeah, I don't foresee that ever happening again, quite frankly. Um, I mean, I could see where you have like a, a small weekend loop every now and then and, and doing stuff like that. And I do think, ironically, I think a lot of the performers miss it right now because they haven't been able to do it. And, and that is such a, a high for some of them of getting to go to these different places and perform. But I mean, the reality is too, John, like, we are seeing people so much healthier where injuries that are happening to pro wrestlers now during this period are only happening in the ring. They're, you're not seeing the wear and tear injuries anymore because they're able to rest up. And and that's good for the industry. That's, that's healthy for the industry and promoting a psychology of, Hey, it's okay to take your time and rest up and, and not worry about traveling city to city, town to town, flying everywhere driving everywhere. I, I do think that's a healthy mentality to have. And there's the mental benefits to that as well, John. Like, I think that's something certainly, we, certainly I, I think take for granted that, you know, when you talk about today's touring schedule, you know, pre pandemic, it's, well, it's, it's a breeze compared to what the guys of the eighties had to go through. Well, it, it's not like it's a cakewalk if you're that person that is getting onto an airplane every week and logging all those thousands of miles from city to city. And it's like you're on a hamster wheel and it never ends. It's like that is to me the part that has probably been, you know, every, every person is going to have a, a different response to that. There's others that love the road. But I think by and large, this is a much healthier way to operate this company for your performers. And the reality is, too. Where's WWE's money coming from these days? It's not coming from their live touring. It's coming from these lucrative TV contracts and exactly. and being able to ostracize your property. So being able to do that, that, I mean, that's where the real money is. So when you, not to say that live touring is not valuable, it certainly is, but when you have a chance to maybe save some money on traveling costs, put the health of the performers at a little more of the forefront and still make good money that are going to get these people paid, I think you do have to reevaluate how you go about doing your business going forward. And I think this pandemic has forced that pivot, and, and we will continue to see that 
evolve over the course of the next three, four, five years. So as you're in Tampa and looking ahead to what you're going to be covering it, are you going into these shows sort of looking at this from just the perspective of the shows in a vacuum? Are you looking at this in terms of just a company that is uh, dipping its toe back into the water of reintroducing fans for at least a weekend uh, and and how and how safe this goes about? Like sort of what is what is your angle that you're looking for that's most intriguing to your audience of what you get out of th- this weekend in Tampa? Yeah. I mean, look, you know, obviously from the creative standpoint, the, the cards have their positives and negatives, and there are some legitimate WrestleMania caliber matches on this card, and there are some that I think some would argue maybe aren't, but um, that's going to happen every time you go to a WrestleMania. Um, I think the thing this year that any observer, especially someone like me that's kind of been in the trenches this year that you're looking for is what is the response of a live crowd to seeing this for mm-hmm. the first time in more than a year? Um, what does safety protocols look like? What does the reveal of talent look like? I mean, don't sleep on the fact that when that first person comes out of the curtain and makes their way down the entranceway, that is a big moment given everything that's happened. That is a huge moment. And I, I think encapsulating that moment in time as a journalist, I think that's kind of what we strive for when you can put into perspective and contextualize what these great moments and and monumental moments mean for a sport in context or an entity in context. So I'm really going to be trying to use my senses this week to soak in everything that's going on and, and for better or for worse, try to draw an observation of was this something that, you know, pro wrestling fans were ready for? Is this something the company is ready for? And and how does this lay the groundwork for what's to come? What was your anticipation of what the demand was going to be like for WrestleMania tickets this year once they actually went on sale? Yeah, well, again, and, and I had previously reported this to, you know, WWE was looking at and when I say looking, I mean, they were aiming for around 45,000 people at one point. Um, and for whatever reason, that did not come to pass in terms of what they ended up with capacity limit um, at 25K or so. Um, I thought there would be most demands met, but I figured that there would be some wiggle room for tickets because there's a lot of uncertainty, number one. Number two, you're losing out on a lot of the international gate that's coming through, which, as you and I both know, is a huge staple of WrestleMania. And I I do think there's still some hesitance on domestic travel, too. So I had figured doing around 25K, which is similar to what the Super Bowl did, would probably be right in the wheelhouse. And I think that's where we're at. It it seems like there's going to be some walk-up availability uh, in in some way, whether it's a single-person pod or maybe some multi-person pods. But I, I think ultimately they will probably end up right around the 25K each night um, in that general vicinity of that, at least. What's your sense of just the attitude in and around, you know, your community, the people you're around in terms of like 
because we're coming from very different perspectives here in Toronto, yeah. in Canada. Um, as of 1201 today, we just went into our latest stay at home order. So it's a very different situation up here. The vaccination uh, process has been much, much slower than our American counterparts. But uh, tell me how the attitudes have changed over the last even three to four weeks um, with, with the vaccinations out there and people's attitudes towards a, a week like this in, in the wrestling world. Sure. So uh, I'm originally from New Jersey, you know, New York City area, and it, it's been such a crazy juxtaposition seeing how my family in that area has handled that stuff and then what they've gone through and my friends and what they've gone through versus what it's been like in Florida during the course of this pandemic. And I mean, it's just not even comparable. Um, this pandemic doesn't exist in Florida. (laughs) It just straight up doesn't exist. Um, You know, you have some people who take on the personal responsibility of wearing masks and, you know, being responsible, trying to social distance, all that stuff if they're not vaccinated. And, um, you know, I've, I personally have played on the safer side of things throughout the course of this, but I work in downtown Orlando and, during the stretch of, of bars and restaurants downtown, you don't see people wearing masks or, you know, every bar is packed. Every club is packed. Every restaurant's packed. It's just a totally different way of life. And I'm not going to sit here and tell you whether that's right or wrong. You are more than entitled to your own opinion on whether that's right or wrong, but um, it's just, it's so different. So while these mask mandates are in effect at most of these indie shows this week and WrestleMania this week, what you have to remember is a lot of these people are also not wearing their masks when they're going out in these packed bars and all that stuff prior. So, you know, I think maybe we're not quite as far along in the vaccination process for this to feel like this is a super safe thing that we can be doing, but it's all going to come down to personal responsibility at the end of the day. So how is this uh, covering this WrestleMania uh, different from you as a, as a media member, not so much what you're covering, but the actual, uh, protocols and procedures that you will have to go through uh, covering the event on Saturday and Sunday. Yeah, it's pretty in line with most of the sporting events I've covered throughout the year. You know, I've covered Orlando Magic Games. I've covered Orlando City SC. I've covered the U.S. men's and women's national soccer teams. Um, I've covered college football. So it, it's all pretty in line with that stuff media accessibility has changed so much during this pandemic. And I I really hope that it's something that reverts back to normal once we're in the clear with this, because uh, I mean, as you know, as someone who's covered this stuff, sure zoom availability and and virtual availability, it's, it's helpful to get the sound that you need, but there is something that you pick up when you interview people in person Um, that allows you to give context to your audience, that allows you to ask questions that you wouldn't be able to normally ask, observations you have. Um, And and that has been the biggest challenge. So kind of pivoting with that has, has been most different than what we're normally accustomed to. It's totally different. I'm, it's something that's really hit me over this last year where, I mean, even, uh, you know, just doing your interviews that we, we've kind of gotten used to this, but it, it's so many things you miss. And that's definitely a question I ask is that uh, the, the larger media picture as a whole, like how, how much access to 
athletes and performers, will this represent like a dividing line that this is a way to distance media from the subjects? And, you know, certainly, you know, in our line of work, that transparency is is paramount. And how much of this is going to be, you know, a, a larger barrier to to get to that transparency? And that's exactly it. That's the buzzword right there, transparency. And that's kind of something that I've really echoed on social media throughout this entire pandemic, especially with pro wrestling, which, as we know, (laughs) transparency has been something that these major pro wrestling companies have struggled with, especially when it comes to COVID. Um, Some are better than others. um, But I mean, as we saw with WWE, COVID was a banned term until the last couple of months to even bring up. And you know, my, my mentality personally with it has always been, you know, treat it like these other sports leagues do where you don't have to say who has COVID. That's a privacy issue. And it's not important for the public to know who has COVID. But if you have a situation where there is a COVID outbreak or people are not going to be made available, I do think it's something that you need to be transparent with your audience with. And, and I wish that's something that these pro wrestling companies were a little more transparent with as a whole during the course of this thing. It's gotten better over time, but, um, you know, back in the summer when we were hiding, when there were 40, 45 people who were getting the virus in a single week, you know, plus. So, yeah. It, it's very much, it, it's been a evolution that they've come along kicking and screaming, I, th- I think, for a lot, because that is <laughs> so ingrained in the DNA of a lot of these companies. It is mask the negative and promote the positive. And that is something that has definitely extended to their corporate communication strategy. And I think that that can go uh, in many different companies that that you can look at, as you said, some better than others. But I think that veil of secrecy is something that is very much ingrained in this industry, which it makes it difficult, but necessary for, you know, reporters such as yourself that are covering very significant issues that are to the benefit of those directly involved, uh, performers in the locker room that sometimes are as much in the dark as the public. Yeah, and and that is why I think, frankly, I got some of the access that I did in the past year because there were performers and wrestlers who felt like they were in the dark and felt like they were not being fully trans their bosses were not being fully transparent with them and i, I and that's concerning you know it, it is and like you know john i work on the independent scene too helping work with some promotions and and work as a talent too and it's paramount that those promotions as well are transparent and running things safely because you have to establish a baseline there and if that baseline is established then you're, you're setting a good precedent for other people to follow and I think this whole situation has forced the industry as a whole to look at itself in the mirror and say, okay, in the future, when these types of issues arise, hopefully it never arises to this extent, but how can we better serve our performers? How can we better serve our audience in a way that doesn't make us look bad, number one, and number two, actually makes us look like we're being fully transparent. And and I hope all these companies take advantage of this time to reflect and and look back and say, okay, what can we do differently next time around when something arises? And have faith in your public, too, that they are also understanding that you are operating in unprecedented times, that yeah. mistakes are going to occur. And, you know, not to s- single out one group, but what GCW did with the collective last October, I think there were a lot of faults attached with that. Uh, you look at what they're doing this week uh, from running outside 
negative tests for performers, uh, request, you know, masks and such. It's at the very least learning from mistakes. And I have definitely become more sympathetic to the, the delicate push and pull of all of this. I definitely sympathize with performers that have not been able to, to work regular and, and need to work as well. And, you know, it's, it's that whole delicate balance of what is, what are the health and safety precautions versus the economic realities of people that are are not working at, at the same time? So it's it's very tricky, but I think the public has a lot more understanding than sometimes they're given credit for. No, absolutely. And, you know, early in the pandemic, when you had these indie promotions running too, where they weren't taking the precautions, you know, widespread testing wasn't as available as it is now they were just running because we just had to run. We just had to fill up that banquet hall with 50 people in order to get a show up. And I just found that to be so irresponsible, Mm -hmm. so tremendously irresponsible. And, and I still see a lot of shows that are running without mask mandates and and without performers um, having to provide negative tests and, and, and stuff like that. And I just, I think that's just a really irresponsible way to run. And um, I, I do think people have learned. And I do think, just as you said, that people are forgiving. I do think the expectations of people have also been raised where they expect people to do things responsibly. True. So or at least the general public does uh, that you're going to have your vocal niche on Twitter uh, that, that doesn't care very much. But I, I do think ultimately that we have raised our expectations, which is a good thing altogether. I know it's uh, you've you've just gotten into Tampa at this point. Like, how much of a buzz do you sense of like a typical WrestleMania week? Do you think it's it's palpable? Do you think that you know, certainly we don't have all the major companies running? Uh, it's not the same level of shows of of years past. Um, but I, I guess what what's your assessment of what the the level of excitement is for these upcoming days leading into the weekend? Yeah, I, I think it's going to be one of those things where it will continue to evolve over the course of the weekend where it will get more and more. The weird thing is going to be tailgating is not allowed in, in this year's uh, procedures. So the, the the parking lots are going to open only shortly before the show starts. So it's that way they won't have people tailgating. And I think that's going to be the weird thing. Like if you've ever gone to a WrestleMania before, you know that the parking lots fill up with people blasting music and food and drinks and all that stuff. That's not to say people won't find their own ways to tailgate around the stadium. I'm sure they will, but uh, on the premises itself, and that's a huge part of the atmosphere, I feel like. So not seeing that will be strange. Um, I'm going to keep my eye out on Friday night, Saturday night here as we go through the weekend and, and kind of start to see as people come in what it looks like and if downtown is, is absolutely popping or, or what the situation is going to be there. I, I think it's going to be a much more straightforward experience this year, truthfully. From just a spectator standpoint, how much uh, or if at all, do you prefer the the two night format that they're going with for the second straight year? Oh, we're going to have to see, right? Like, you know, it, it, it seems like it's going to be pretty much a three, three and a half hour show, which I think is much more preferable for anyone to digest, let alone someone who covers it. Mm-hmm. But I, I, I think that is a much more digestible way. I, I think that just the bigger question is, John, it's like, do you need to do two nights and do you need to do a show that's seven hours long? And I don't think the answer is yes to either of those questions. We have 
30 plus WrestleManias to show us that you can do things in a more concise way. But, you know, we're in the era now of more content, more content, more content. So there's this self-imposed need that we need to go out there and, and do two nights and do things. But you know what? If the brand is strong enough and they can do a double gate, and this year a double gate will give you similar to what a normal gate would be at least, then maybe that's what they're going to do. If, if you're looking at, you know, let's say that, you know, things are dramatically different and we're closer to a, a regular year next year uh, for Dallas and all things uh, stay stay together as planned. What do you envision uh, WWE's week looking like next year where you have mm-hmm. Raw Monday, NXT Tuesday, and then you have sort of those Wednesday and Thursdays open? Uh, the Hall of Fame has to has to fit in somewhere. And, you know, it's going back to one night of WrestleMania next year. But do you see this, like, as you mentioned, more content that it's going to be the task of WWE of largely filling up an entire week uh, leading up to Sunday? Yeah. And I think that's exactly what you're looking at. I think you're looking at a takeover thing. You're looking at maybe a world's collide kind of thing. Uh, maybe if this new NXT show that we've heard about gets off the ground, maybe that's taking up some time on the weekend. I think WWE's goal will be to create not a monopoly, but uh, a dom- to dominate the weekend and or dominate the week rather. And pretty much as you just laid out, I, I think the goal is to, go from monday to sunday or monday to monday truthfully and and try to operate in that sense and i I think they honestly will (laughs) and um it's going to be more interesting to see because now that changes the dynamic of how independents run during the week because normally there were those open nights for independents to run well then that changes up a lot so i'm i'm really interested to see how those kinds of things go down as we progress in the coming years. And yeah, sure, it's only one night right now. But who's to say that this two-night show isn't a smashing success and all of a sudden we get a second night announced for WrestleMania next year? Well, that's it. I mean, I, I don't throw anything out, out the window. It's you know, it's, it's an enormous venue to try and run two nights in a row. But I mean, who's to say that, I mean, a, a half-full AT&T Stadium is still an extremely profitable night for the company that... Um, sure. I, anything can be on the table. To, to me, the interesting question is now that it's very much this this arms race of finding the undiscovered talent that is out there. What are these independent shows going to be consisting of in the next year, two years to come? Where I think anyone that grabs a buzz, it's going to be multiple suitors that are going after these people. That I mean, you've been around plenty of independent performers, John. That you maybe needed a seven, eight-year window before you're signing a full-time contract. I think that time is going to be drastically reduced because if you're an AEW, a WWE, even an Impact or Ring of Honor, you are looking for who has that spark and we want to be on the ground floor to sign that talent up. And it's going to be a game of replenishing your your independence. And that's going to be the task of your GCWs and countless other groups when it comes to finding the ne- the next talent. It's going to be a very difficult task. I think. I know I'm losing all my friends on the Indies right now. They're all they're all getting <laughs> they're all getting picked up. Yeah. It's, 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 I'm, it's, it's very bittersweet because I, I I love these guys and girls and seeing them achieve their dreams is incredible. 
Um, but I'm, I'm losing some great talent that I've, I've had a chance to work against. And like this, this weekend, for example, I'm managing Charles Mason against Daniel Garcia um, on uh, Tony Deppin's beer house on Saturday at noon. And Daniel Garcia, man, the limitless wrestling world champion, this guy is wrestling eight matches in three nights. And I mean, I have no doubt he's going to be signed by AW or NXT within the next three, four months. So uh, you you talk about these showcase opportunities. That's what this is all about. And thankfully, with how many promotions have sprung up and, and how aggressive WWE and AEW and Impact and Ring of Honor have gotten with signing talent, it creates all these amazing opportunities and really puts a showcase on these independent shows. But the double-edged sword is if, if a company like WWE is running every single night, well, then it's going to take away some shine from some of these promotions. So sure. uh, it's, sure. it's kind of a, a tricky line to walk in that sense. Uh, I just wanted to end off just uh, for those that might not be familiar. I mean, you, you've alluded to like your work on the independent scene, but just a bit about your history with Limitless Wrestling and your role there, as well as I know that they have a, a show coming up on the 16th of this month. Yes, well, I, I appreciate that. Um, Suffer No Fools coming up on April 16th on IWTV. Um, I've been working with Limitless Wrestling and, and on the independent scene, but it, the Limitless Wrestling is my home promotion because uh, when I was working in New England, uh, I really got involved with Randy Carver there, who is just incredible, 24 years old, running one of the top promotions in the United States. It's it's unbelievable. And um, I take a lot of pride in the quality of the product that we put on up there in Limitless. And um, in addition to helping with all the media stuff and doing commentary for them. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm the, I'm a pro wrestling journalist who's also a pro wrestling manager. And uh, uh, I'll tell you this, John, the, the Emmy award winning John Alba is a little different of a person <laughs> than John Alba. Hey, this guy's um, a hell of a promo. That, that was a hell of a promo. Well, thank that, you. That you. Just put up. I, I mean, I, uh, titles come and go. Emmy awards that. are permanent. I mean, that gold's forever, baby. And, you know, um, you know, that guy, the, the, the principle of, um, you just, I mean, I can tell you, I, I was interviewing Billy Gunn back in like 2015 and he said to me, you know, you have a very punchable face. And I said, <laughs> Oh, and he goes, no, that's your, that's your moneymaker, man. People are going to want to pay to see you get kicked in the face. I said, Oh, Okay. And that got the wheels turn a little bit. And, you know, it's, it's, it's really been a blast and, and, you know, walking that fine line too, of, you know, covering wrestling versus performing in it where oh, as a journalist, I, I recuse myself from covering like the quote unquote dirt or creative stuff. That stuff doesn't interest me. But when you have stuff like what we had this past year, where all of a sudden real life things are very relevant in the pro wrestling world. Um, that's where my expertise as a sports journalist kick in and, and you can create an opportunity where you're providing a voice for these performers and these people working in pro wrestling in, in a very real sense where real world effects occur within the industry. And uh, it's just, as you said at the beginning of this interview, it's, it's been a wild, wild year covering this beat. So um, yeah, man, it's it's been really, really fun. Uh, well, you've done a fantastic jo job, John. I've followed a lot of your work. I, I think you're just outstanding and covering th this pandemic. It's been unique for all of us, but I, I think you've been right at the forefront uh, there in Florida. Uh, you can also catch uh, John's work on the Living the Gimmick podcast with Doug McDonald and Josh Eisenberg. Uh, you guys have a Patreon uh what what's coming up in the near future on the podcast uh, WrestleMania coverage wise? 
Yeah, well, I really appreciate the plug for that too. Uh, Doug and, and Josh are near and dear to me and, and their work is so appreciated. And um, yeah, I've, you know, every week it drops on Tuesdays. We do long form stuff. It's a good, nice driving listen. And then on Patreon, we do a bunch of bonus content. I drop some scoops there as well. We do monthly watch alongs of retro shows and it's a lot of fun. So um, I, I really appreciate the plug on that. Patreon.com forward slash living the gimmick and uh, living the gimmick anywhere you find your podcasts, you can find it there. So check that out. Uh, he is at John Elba on Twitter. He will have coverage, as I said, the man on the ground this week in Tampa, Florida. And John, it was great just to uh, chat with you for the first time. I hope at some point we can uh, reconnect and do this again. It was a real pleasure uh, to chat with you. Absolutely, man. I really appreciate the time.